there's been a uh, sheet of paper that's uh, gone around just with the text on it, and uh, we're going to be using that a little bit later in the service. So uh, if you haven't got a sheet of paper, put your hand up. There's some, um, a couple of hands here. That's great. If you haven't got a pen, now those pens are very special pens. They're Canterbury Gardens uh, etched pens. Now, now, if the office staff don't see those pens back, you're all in big trouble. So um, we'll put the bucket of pens back up here somewhere and you can place them there on your way out today. Okay, so that's great. Look, there's uh, no more emotion or physical touch that contains more meaning than a kiss. Yeah, right from early childhood, we, we are kissed by our parents. Uh, we, as brothers and sisters of our siblings, are, are told to kiss our siblings. And it's in its whole design, a kiss is a deeply emotional, a deeply tender and uh, conveys a, a, a sense of love one to the other. You know, and it's an expression that is shared amongst all cultures. Uh, now, Shabu, I'd like you to come up here and I want you to experience part of my culture. If anyone's going to take pictures now, just letting you know, this could be a church discipline issue going on. <laughs> So in my culture, the New Zealand culture, that's the traditional welcome. It's, it's, as you see, it was a touch of the nose which represents a, a kiss. Now, unfortunately, if you are too eager in doing that, you end up by headbutting the person next to you. But um, that's a cultural expression of, hey, you are part of the family, you are welcome, and it's shared extensively. I don't know, but some of you may have noticed that uh, with the kiss, as your children grow a little older, the kisses become less relevant, right? Especially when it comes to sort of public displays of affection. The last thing you want is your mum and dad to kiss you. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for Mount Evelyn Christian School because as you um, ride into that place, they have a, a strip where you, you get out of the car and it's called Kiss and Drop. All right, so if you've got kids, the, the kids cannot get out of the car until the supervisor or policeman <laughs> has seen the kiss. All right, that's kind of a, an interesting uh, way of legislating love for one another, isn't it, really? Uh, but that's what they do up there, and we've had a lot of fun with that. Even as our kids moved away from Mex and we headed up to the States, and we'd always joke and laugh about every time we pulled up to a school, oh, kiss and drop time. You've got to gotta kiss us before you go. Show me that you love me. And uh, But that's not the normal experience during the teenage years, right? Because something changes within us. God has built us in a way that our desire for kisses changes. You know, the, the desire to be kissed becomes more romantic. It becomes more intimate. And, you know, God has designed this inner yearning 
this desire for intimacy, because we read that last week in Genesis chapter 2. You go back to the creation account where God says, you are to be together, you are to be one, one flesh. That's an inbuilt creatorial desire that God has given us. It's not a wrong desire, but in the bounds of God's design, it is a beautiful expression. You know, and most of us here are beyond our teenage years, so most of us probably can remember back to our very first romantic kiss. Some of you might have been humoured by that experience. I remember (laughs) when Julie and I first started um, getting romantically linked. Uh, That's that's term for getting together, folks, okay? Uh, That... um, moment when the first kiss was about to occur happened and neither of us were any good all right and as we went to kiss what happened is we clunked teeth that's pretty embarrassing isn't it really and um so that was our first kiss so we really needed some help and this 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 morning and coaching and training and how to kiss and we're going to show you a video which may help if you're at that stage in life. So um, I think we're going to go and, go and get the video clip. Max? <laughs> ah, the perils of the first kiss. Yeah, a bit of light uh, entertainment there. Folks, as you're aware, we're, we, over the next three weeks, are looking at Song of Solomon. Last week we looked at the historical nature of it and uh, we're going to continue to look through this book and it's a, it's a wonderful book about how God has designed love and intimacy. As mentioned last week, we're going to look at uh, the historical and grammatical and literal way of interpreting this book. We're not using allegory or typology because at the heart of the song, it, it's about how we celebrate love within the bounds of marriage as God's gift as God's good gift. And also, the song is not just intended to extol love for love's sake, because it's linked in the whole canon of wisdom literature. All right, So it's, it's a design to say, when we read wisdom literature, it says this is the right way, this is the preferred way, this is the way it should be. And as part of the wisdom literature, the song, I believe, endeavours to teach us about the nature of intimacy. As we read through the song, and we're going to do that today, you'll see that intimacy grows. We'll start in 1-1, and by three weeks' time we'll be at 8-14, and you'll see that intimacy will grow. The theme of intimacy and its development within a loving relationship speaks of drawing two people together in a oneness uh, and it's not just a physical oneness, it also entails the emotional, the psychological and physical dimensions of what God said in Genesis 2, you shall be one flesh. And you know, we can learn a lot about this book. And much from this book, because 
in our hustle and bustle of our current culture, we, we tend to skim over this thing and we say, oh, this is a bit of humour or it's, a, it's some kind of strange joke. And, you know, why is it really relevant? It's really relevant because God, through his Holy Spirit, has placed it in his word. It's his word to us about what oneness can look like. I think we need to soften our hearts to the Spirit's guiding as we go through this book. Because it provides some examples of what passionate expressions of love are like and what that should be like within our lifelong relationships. Now we may read these words and uh, we may long that our mate might be like that. And that's true, because we have broken relationships amidst us. We have strained relationships within our marriages. And we may long and say, well, I don't get it because I'm in this situation. But you know what? God's grace and the power of his gospel can change us. It can change us to experience what this song says. You know, for us Aussie blokes, the best we can do when it comes to romance after the courtship is over is probably a, a candle at dinner maybe twice a year, maybe the odd flower here or there. According to the Song of Songs, that's not good enough. It's a lifelong pursuit of intimacy. Now, I especially think it is in our culture, in Australia and New Zealand culture, we just don't like this intimacy thing. I'm the son of an Irish immigrant. Intimacy was as far away from our daily examples as it could be. And yet the song says true biblical love towards one another is incredibly intimate. And it's deep. And it's a beautiful thing. So when it comes to Intimacy, this song which is inspired by the Spirit of God teaches us that a married couple, we must nurture an intimate and romantic relationship. So that would be a first challenge for those of us who are married here. How do we do that? How do we nurture that? Are we that interested in that? The Bible says we should be. You see, it takes time and it takes creativity, but it's absolutely essential. Such romance and intimacy involves care, conversation, respect. Yeah, that means you need to talk to one another. Communication is high on the radar here when it comes to intimacy. And all our interplay and intimacy helps us build a strong marriage. And when you discover that beautiful romance in a marriage relationship, you do understand the good gift that God gives us. And I know that's not the experience of all of us. But let's look at this as the ideal and rest on God's grace to develop this in our relationship. You know, this... Song of Songs, I won't go into in depth here, is in many ways a, a commentary on the first chapter, first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. 
where the major focus of those first nine chapters is um, a man giving advice to his son and saying, beware of the adulteress, beware of the seductive nature of a woman. Because her enticements are good. But if you fall trapped to those enticements, what will happen is that you'll be led away from wisdom. And there's then the positive encouragement. That's a negative encouragement inside the first nine chapters of Proverbs. But the positive encouragement is in chapters 5, 15 to 19, where it says, Enjoy fully one's wife and particular the sexual delights that may be found with her. This is then developed further in the wisdom literature and says here in the Song of Songs what that's about. I just want to give you a very quick overview before we read uh, this song. Because um, the Song of Songs seems to move from one stage of yearning to the next. I think the first three and a bit chapters, which we'll read today, are all about the courtship. I think from chapter 3, 6 to 5, 1, it's about a wedding day. And the balance of the book is about growing in intimacy. This morning we titled it A Kiss of Desire, and that's, that sums up courtship. It's the promise that we're waiting for. Next week we'll look at a kiss of fulfillment as the wedding day comes around. And then we'll have a look at a kiss of intimacy as conflict occurs and, and how to deal with that in a, a relational way. So now I'm going to ask my lovely wife, my bride, to come here because we're going to read the Song of Songs. That's what that bit of paper is there for. And see, the Song of Songs is a really fascinating thing. We're not going to sing. You're very thankful for that, I'm sure. But we're going to read this, and we're going to read it in parts. There's a clear male part and a female part, and within the song there's a clear chorus. So you as uh, the congregation are going to be my chorus today, and we'll put up the words you need to read at the appropriate time. So um, we'll do that. Oh, you don't read that yet. I'll tell you when you read that, okay? So if you want to turn to your sheet, and uh, we will read. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedah, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? I 
I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young woman. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I hope by that reading you get a sense of the poetry, a sense of the song. And we're just going to briefly this morning look at this part of the song which is entitled The Courtship. 
And I think for our own understanding of this uh, the song, it's good to determine, well, who is the audience of the song? Five times throughout the song, we have the phrase, O daughters of Jerusalem. That would give you a reasonable indicator that the, the young virgins of the city were listening to this song, were being instructed by this song. On uh, the first occasion in, in 1 verse 5, the songwriter addresses the daughters of Jerusalem as a group. In 5 verse 8, a little bit further along the song, we see the daughters of Jerusalem are sought for uh, in a relation to providing advice to the woman. In 5.16, the, the woman says to the daughters of Jerusalem, hey, there is great pleasure in a kiss. A great pleasure in a kiss, 5.16. But on three occasions, we've read them twice here in this little refrain, the doors of Jerusalem are warned. And we will uh, talk about that a little bit later. You know, and as we attempt to sort of uncover this poetry, as we tend to look at the literal meaning of it, look at the symbolism that perhaps it, it takes, we must remember that this was written to at a time for a people. The time of Solomon's reign, the people are the Israelites. Why? To show the perfectness of love and intimacy and what it means to be one flesh. And it must be understood that the Israelite community and their attitude toward marital sex and virginity would be completely aligned to the Old Testament teachings. They would see the song as a, a song of wedded bliss. And so as we move through it, we, we need to, to think that um, as we interpret it, we need to just, just realize that this would not be interpreted from probably a Western view where our culture says it's okay to live with one another. It's okay to enjoy the intimacy of the sexual union prior to being married. That's not the frame of reference we have here. It's not a biblical frame of reference. And I think the song in a very powerful way displays that and we'll unfold that as we go through the song. So let's just look at briefly at some of the, the major aspects of the song. You've read it, and please make notes on the bit of paper you have as we go through the text, because it's wonderful. It's wonderful as you read through this, this love being expressed towards one another. It's also shameful, because I don't know if there's any time in my life that I've actually spoken to Julie like this. <laughs> I'm not a poet. But you know what? It's, it's, uh, it's this... Um, issue of of God-designed intimacy that we want to draw to. Right at the start, we, we had the first refrain, if you like. Let him kiss me with the kisses of my mouth. So right at the start, we see that it kisses that beautiful emotion and deep romantic act. Now this is not a this is not a nurturing kiss. It's a passionate kiss. Kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The woman is longing to, to kiss the man of her dreams. 
because love is broader than wine. Love is greater than wine. It's better than wine. And uh, it's exciting. Love is delightful. And his love will excite my senses. That's the imagery we're getting here. So excite my senses as fine perfume. So senses are not excited when you come in from the building site smelling like a sewer. All right? Senses aren't excited when you come back from the gym dripping from head to toe with sweat. Senses are excited when you smell good. And that's what she's saying here. And she yearns and longs, draw after me, draw with me. Let us run. Let's run this this race. Let's run together. Their love has been pictured as being cultivated in the freedom and the spontaneity of a rustic setting. Not within the courts of an urban life. This picture here shows that she longs for intimacy of the man's chamber. And then the chorus comes in and we read that, we will exult and rejoice to you, we will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. This chorus embraces, the people embrace uh, the appreciation for the love that's been flourished here. And then we go to the next part of the song, verse 5 to 7 of chapter 1. And this... Uh, here just uh, tells a little bit about the woman in question. Her dark skin probably identifies her as uh, of the laboring class, someone who works for a living, unlike someone who sits in a, you know, in a time in a court being beautified, you know, like the Esther type, harem type thing. This shows that the sun has affected her skin. It's so... Uh, it shows that she's vulnerable to the, the weather. It's not a scorn on her socially or racially. It's just saying that she is someone that works. The sun has looked upon me. And then she uses a really interesting term in, in verse 6. My mother's sons were angry with me. They kept, made me keeper of the vineyard. So I worked hard in the vineyard, and yet I did not look after my own vineyard, referring to her own body. Okay. Did not look after her. I didn't have time to pamper it. I didn't have time to go through the beauty treatments of the day. And then you have the pastoral imagery here, not pastoral as in John Shabu and myself, but pastoral as in sheep, goats, horses, flocks. And it's a major metaphor that's used right throughout the song. And she says, my soul loves where you pasture your flock and where you make it lie down at noon. And it's a real common theme in love poetry of this ancient Near East that the pastoral imagery draws this expression of love. And she asks the question, where can I find my love? It was answered by the chorus, well, go look, he's a shepherd, go look amongst the sheep. And then we have 
the first admiration song. Now, blokes, as Aussie blokes, this is where we can start to learn a little bit of romance from the song. He admires his woman. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. That's what the chorus says. And pass your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. And then the man says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, just a word of warning here. Never, 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 ever refer to your beloved as a horse. This goes without saying. All right? Especially when the next line talks about um, your cheeks. Um, could be flanks. You don't do that, all right? So when you look at this love language here, he's saying a mare among what? Pharaoh's chariots. Now, horses amongst Pharaoh's chariots were beautiful. They were heavily decorated and they had embroidery all over them and ornaments dripping off them. So in a sense, he's saying... This is my mental image of you and this is how beautiful you are. In today's society, we might say I compare you to an XJ6 with full leather trim and hub wheels. Maybe. Or the most luxurious vehicle you could ever think of as a beautiful piece of machinery, you know, a bit like a Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost and all its trimmings. That's the type of thing he's doing here. He's saying, you are beautiful like that, just exquisite, outstanding. Because these horses of Pharaoh convey great beauty and regal dignity. And this is how he described it. Verse 11 the community adds to her beauty by just saying, yeah, we'll make you silver, we'll make you ornaments of gold. And then we have the admiration song from the woman to the man. And she basically goes along the whole theme again of spices, fragrance, springtime, blossom. Talks about there in verse 14, the henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi is a, a place outside the Dead Sea. It's an oasis. Evidently, the henna blossom was the only place in Israel that this blossom was produced. So it's an exquisite fragrance. It's an expensive fragrance of highest value. So this is how the woman is relating. I look at him and he's just of the highest value. I long for him to be kissed by him. And then we work through and um, we just see an exclamation of adoration in verse 15 from him to her. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then she continues with the romance and adoration, and they banter together from 15 through to 2 1. And then we have more adoration, 
an arrival song and a warning. We've read it. I'm not going to read it again, but you see she likens this man to an apple tree. She likens him to the fruit of spring. She likens him to a sustainer, someone who will stain her yearning and longing. She is embraced by him, verse 6. And then she provides the first warning. Don't awaken love. Don't awaken love too early. Don't do that, O daughters of Jerusalem. Do not waken, do not stir until the time is right. There's a lesson for us in that today, is there not? Because our society consistently markets to awaken love early. It consistently portrays the romance of images on our televisions, in our movies, in our books. So that's okay. It's okay to have many partners. It's okay to just try before you're married. Warning here is no. That's not God's best design. That's not the way God has designed it. Now, awakening love is a sensitive subject because love can be awakened through closeness and intimacy before time. You know, the age-old thing is, well, how close can I get to the cliff edge before I'm actually doing stuff I shouldn't be? And I think in Christian circles, in Christian teenage circles, we flirt with that line. We need to ask for God's grace to flee some of those temptations because his best design is at the right time with the right person, this is where love and intimacy will flourish. Now I think at the heart of this what he's saying What she's saying to the girls is you should not allow yourself to be sexually aroused until the proper time and person arrives. The natural joy of sexual awakening is ruined by premature experimentation. For a woman to awaken love before it pleases is to deprive herself of the full experience of romance and sexuality symbolized by the graceful animals. Notice in that verse it says, O doors of Jerusalem by the gazelles or the does of the field. That's an example. It's a metaphor. It's a language. Look at the beauty and gracefulness of those animals. And don't awaken love before it's right. It's not wrong to awaken love. That's not what it says. It says just don't do it too early or at the wrong time. And then from uh, chapter 2, 10 through to 15, we have the the male singing that famous song, Come Away With Me. I won't sing it for you. But it's what he's saying. Come away with me. It could be the term of marriage proposal. It could be whatever. But his intent and his desire is to say, I want you to be my woman. Uh, 
It's interesting he calls her a dove in the cleft of the rock, verse 14, in the crannies of the cliff. I think that's a, an allusion to the fact that, that she's still a virgin. Because in here, this type of language talks about the fact that um, she's in the cleft of a rock. She's hidden. She's not open. And that's uh, what the intent of this is. And then we move to chapter 3. After the come away with me, we have the affirmation of the love by the, the lady. And it's interesting because she moves the image of the gazelle from one that's leaping over mountains, you know, the Superman image, which was a bit like Steve Bentley this morning. It's kind of funny. I was um, walking into church and Ruth was in front of Steve. Steve got out of the car and there's a great big puddle. So Steve leapt like a gazelle across the puddle to follow Ruth. And I, I just the immediate image I thought was Song of Songs, but no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he, he left. But, you know, we, we see at the start of here, in the arrival song, verse 8, that his beloved comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. And then down at the end of the chapter, we see that he is now grazing. He's content. He's made the proposal. She's accepted him. He's now in a place of... He doesn't. He's not concerned about showing off. The intimacy is moving. You know when you start dating somebody or you're interested in somebody, us blokes tend to puff our chest out and we tend to show off. We are like those young stags and those gazelles jumping over mountains. And when we finally, finally make that commitment to the woman of our dreams, we simmer down a bit. We're just happy to graze and feed. Well, maybe that's more than marriage. <laughs> we graze and feed a lot. We become very content. But this is showing your progression from a leaping, dancing gazelle to a grazing, contented animal. Now, I'm not saying the man's an animal, okay? He's a human. But his love emotion is, I'm contented. And I'm okay just waiting. Yeah, it's a bit like that video, isn't it? It's the 90-10 principle. <laughs> Contentment comes when there's mutability about it all. And then we come to probably the most difficult part of the song, chapter 3, verses um, 1 to 5, because it's difficult to understand what it means. It's difficult, to, and there's a couple of options. If you want to take it literally here in this particular situation, it makes no sense because, firstly, a, a young woman would not be going around the streets by herself. That would be considered a prostitute's job in the, in the ancient Near East. Um, and the watchman, what's that got to do with it? And, you know, asking for where's my love. Literally, it, it, it's a difficult rendering. Some have taken this passage just to mean a dream. She's lying in a bed. She's dreaming about her beloved. But once again, that's a bit of a stretch because uh, the text never says it's a dream, for one. And you can make up any sort of interpretive technique you'd like when you say, oh, it's a dream, it must mean this, this, and this. 
So I think it's more symbolic. And uh, there are three symbols here. There's a wandering symbol, there's a meeting the guard symbol, and I'm taking the man back to my mother's house symbol. You know, as we stated before, it's assumed that in the song that these two lovers are betrothed to be married. We believe there's a proposal in there and now they're betrothed. And betrothal in ancient Near East is different to engagement here. It was a contract already. And I reckon that the only real good interpretation here of the text is that this is this five verses represents almost the the anxiety of the woman when she's considering her marriage and considering uh, the process of becoming the man's wife and losing her virginity. You know, alone at night here, she yearns for her lover. As she mentally seeks him out and contemplates a physical relationship with him, she confronts this issue. She knows she can't have him in that intimate, intimate way without losing her precious gift of virginity. Nevertheless, she does take herself and makes the resolve that she will. And she doesn't, and I reckon this, these verses are wrestling with that decision. You know, the parallel event later in the song uh, describes not her anxiety over this particular aspect, but it's the beauty of the actual event itself. And so I think this is just a beautiful piece of poetry and the woman's just wrestling with this issue. And as we read through the rest of the song next week, we'll see how that is answered. So what are the lessons we can learn from here? I think there is a couple of lessons. The first one is that romance and intimacy are God's good design for us. This book proves it. You start in Genesis 2, you see it was God's design. If you go through the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, you see it is God's design. And you see in the Song of Songs, as you read it as a love poem, as we should, as a love song, that is God's beautiful design. Romance and sexuality are God's good gifts and are there to be enjoyed in the bounds of marriage. Do you know what? If you're blown it in some way, God is a God of all grace. The gospel teaches us that, sure, this is a picture of human love, but the picture of divine love is that God forgives. God forgives. And God wants the very best for you. So don't be trapped with guilt and those sorts of things. Come to the cross, repent and forgive, and seek God's gracious forgiveness. 
and from this point forward designed to say, I want the best in my life for what God has designed when it comes to intimacy and courtship. The third lesson here, I think, which is important, is the whole general warning. It happens twice in this courtship passage. Do not awaken love. Sure, the woman says that to the the daughters of Jerusalem. Don't awaken it. It's not time. It's not right. goes for men as well. Do not awaken love. Do not be aroused by this temptation. Wait for the right time. Wait for the right person. Be before the Lord and ask, who is it? So that's the courtship. Don't awaken love. Realize that romance, sexuality are God's good gifts. If you're blinded in some way, realize that God's grace is there for you. Turn to him and say, and repent. And say, Lord, forgive me. And start working the right design. Married couples, this week, I would like you to look at the song, look at this courtship stuff, and be honest with one another. Evaluate where your intimacy is at. Is it deepening? Young dating couples, evaluate where your boundary setting is. Wait for the right time. And that's what God's word tells us today. So we're going to invite the Music team up to sing.